0: As we come now before the very Word of God, please turn in your Bibles, if you'd like to read with me, to Matthew in chapter 2. We'll take up this morning half of the chapter, the second half of Matthew chapter 2. And before we read, would you please pray with me? Lord, your Word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path that is that by your word we can see that it's because of your word that we know what's true and that we know who you are as God. Lord, now as we hear from you in your word, would you teach us the way, the truth, and the life. Help us to hear these things by your spirit and to trust and believe. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. This is Matthew in chapter 2. We'll we'll clip the end of the verses we were at last week, but we'll begin here uh, in verse 13 and read to the end of the chapter. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. Now, when they had departed, behold... An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. According to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise. so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of God. Now, these are the final words on Jesus' childhood in Matthew. We've just sort of carried on the story since uh, Advent and Christmas season, just kind of carrying on wherever the text would a, take us next. So here we are. Next week, when we get to chapter 3 in the next verses, there's a time jump there that Matthew will skip over about three decades into Jesus as an adult in his ministry because Matthew is not writing a biography of Jesus. Jesus giving equal time to every stage in Jesus' life. He's writing a gospel, which is news. It's good news. And so he's going to focus primarily on Jesus in his adult life, what he, te- what he teaches the people, and even more than that, what Jesus did to save us. But here we are this morning, and, and it would be nice here, as we close up chapter 2, if the text ended Jesus' childhood... Account on a happy note. But that's not the case. We know that the Bible is is a hopeful book, a healing book, a good book, but the Bible is not a naive book. That is, the scripture is, is true to life as it occurs, and those events of life are not always happy. So I suppose I might have been wise, if I were wiser than I am, to have given maybe some sort of trauma warning before this text or before this sermon, not because these things are inappropriate to talk about, they're not, but just because they're sensitive and hard. Some of these things may touch a particular nerve for some of us. The subjects that we find here are rough ones. That's an an understatement. Just by way of quick summary of what's happened here, we know that, that Herod the Great... So he was called Herod the Great, the current king of the Jews, has caught word of Jesus because of the passing of the magi through his area, that there's this new baby who's being called by some the king of the Jews, and that's threatening to Herod. So, of course, he's going to try to snuff Jesus out, just cut it off at the bud And so Joseph is warned in a dream here to escape with his wife and child. They've got a new baby, uh, or a new uh, uh, young child at least, in in tow. But that very night, uh, he he heads off uh, so that they're spared from death, but they're now homeless refugees in Egypt for a while. Others, however, are not so fortunate This is what some groups might call collateral damage because Herod orders the sweeping execution of all the baby boys in Bethlehem who are under three just to make sure he gets rid of King Jesus. I don't want to downplay that or just read on by it or gloss over these things. We're to hear truth, even even hard truths sometimes. Now, because we're after truth. If you were here last week, I suppose I need to correct or, or at least maybe clarify something I said last week because uh, we want to know truth, we want to know what's happening here. Last week I said that, that Herod's decree affected hundreds or even thousands of families, and that's true generally, uh, but not directly. The city of Bethlehem today, if we were to go there in the actual city, roughly has a population of about 30,000 people. So, it's a little less than twice the size of Hannibal. Not the case in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, the city of Bethlehem, according to archaeologists who study these things and know far more than I do, the population of Bethlehem in Jesus' day was roughly 300. So, Bethlehem's about the size of Rensselaer. So, given the small size, of Bethlehem and the region around it immediately, the actual number of boys who would have been killed by this edict was probably somewhere around six. Six boys. You know, most people estimate that it was at least no more than, than 20 that's far fewer deaths than we might imagine. This scene is sometimes called the massacre of the, of the innocents, which has this impression that it was huge, that there were thousands affected by this. This was not a mass infanticide. But it's still you know, too many. Six is too many. One is one too many. One empty crib is still a tragedy too awful for words, especially if that empty crib is yours. So, the question that might come to mind that some might wonder is how could God allow such a thing? How could God allow such a thing? Why doesn't God stop it from happening? I mean, Joseph is given a warning to escape to Egypt with Mary and, and Jesus, but why didn't the other families receive a similar sort of warning? Or better yet, why not just not do the warning, just stop it at, at its source? Why not just put an end to King Herod before he even begins? And while we're at it, why not just end, you know, all the Herods, all the Hitlers and Stalins and Jezebels and Jeroboams and Haman's, why, and why not just go big or go home and just stop Satan in the garden to begin with? I mean, the reality is God, God could have stopped it all with just a word, without even breaking a sweat, but he doesn't. So if we can ask with reverence, which I hope we do, why not? Why doesn't he stop it? This is an old and complex question that many have wrestled with for centuries so we're not going to resolve or answer all of our question of course but the bible does give us some guidance some good place to stand on these sorts of things formally for, f- formerly not form technically That's the word I want. Technically, philosophers call this question the problem of evil. And typically, the philosophical approach to evil goes like this Given that we know evil exists in the world, given that we know this, God can either be all powerful or all good, but he can't be both. That's the philosophical approach, because if if God is all-powerful, that is, he's over nature, he's over history, he's even over our wills and decisions and all of those things, if God was all-powerful and could stop evil, but he doesn't, he must not be all-good. Or, on the other hand, a God who is all good, who wants to stop evil, but is somehow unable to do it, somehow limited by something outside of himself or by some other component, that sort of God must not be all-powerful. So he can't be both all-powerful and all-good. That's what philosophy might tell us, but that's not the God that we meet in the Bible. The Bible consistently maintains that the Lord God is both, is both all-powerful and all-good. But how can that be? When Scripture doesn't neatly resolve the problem of evil in a nice, tidy little box... The Bible's not interested in all the philosophical questions and such around this. There's, There's also no easy, tidy explanation in the Bible, so if you still wrestle with these things at times, even after this sermon, that's okay. But the closest thing we come to an answer to this in the Bible is this. God is far bigger than any of us can fathom. Which means his reason for the things he does are more complex than we can comprehend. God is far bigger than we can fathom, which includes his reasoning for things. So, in the midst of evil, not just this evil, I mean any evil, every evil in the world, including this one, but all other ones, God has a greater good in mind that is often unseen to us and may never be seen to us. There is always, in the mind and action of God, always an ultimate good, God-glorifying purpose in the pain. That is not a cop-out, that is not just wishful thinking to appease ourselves, to make us feel better about really hard stuff. That's what the Bible says. This is what God says. The most famous example about dealing with these things, maybe I already guessed where I'm going, is Job. You know Job? Job. Old Testament guy, big old chunk right there in the middle of the Old Testament. Job, at the very beginning of the book, loses all of his wealth, all of his health, and almost all, except for his wife, of his kids. That would be the hardest part, of course. You know, because Job had more kids than probably uh, were killed in Bethlehem. At any rate, Job is the epitome of a man who experiences true suffering. And if you read through the entire book, throughout the whole thing, it's this winding roller coaster of Job and his friends trying to understand what's going on. Job and his companions are arguing, really, trying to wrap their brains around what God is really doing in the midst of this. The summary of Job's friends is to say, Job, God is just. God is always right, so that means you must have got what you deserved. You must have somehow earned this as a sort of punishment. And Job maintains no, that's not the case. No, that cannot be the case. There's this big tug of words then throughout the book for some 30 chapters or so until at the very end of the book, God comes. And God speaks for himself at the end. And God does not say, Job, you deserved it. Quite the opposite. He also does not explain all of his reasons. He just says this, Job, you don't know. You don't know. I'm God, and you're not. You don't know. You barely understand the rain. How do you think you can understand this? You barely understand the way of the goat and the donkey and the ostrich. How do you think you can understand this? You barely understand the way of even light and dark. How do you think you can understand this? We hear at the end of Job, God talking about holding even the fiercest creatures as if they were some sort of pet on a leash. And we're reminded that the ways of the Lord are unsearchable, that he is great, and we know him not. So if we can look at this another way, none of us would pick up a book, not a theology book, I mean a book, fiction book, a story book, none of us would pick up a book, start in the middle, just open to a random page in the middle, read a couple of pages, and then think we understand what the whole book is about. None of us would be so foolish to do that. And yet some of us think we can do that about our lives or about the world, that we're looking at a few pages here in the middle and I can make an assessment about what's going on. God not only holds the whole book of history, not only knows the whole book of history, God is the author of it. That is, he has pinned every word with all goodness that should call for some humility in us some trust in god from us even in the worst of tragedies even in the worst of your tragedy now We know that all situations are different. No two tragedies are alike. God's particular purpose in in one event or circumstance may not be exactly the same as his particular purpose in another. So these events in Bethlehem, awful as they are, are unique in a lot of ways. But there's some things we can learn about this that would help us in any case. In the rest of our time, I just want to make three observations about this particular tragedy here. The first observation is this. This tragedy is sin. This tragedy is sin. Every tragedy, in some way, is born out of sin. Everything that is all disease, all disaster, all death, all of it is ultimately a product of the fall, a product of the sin of Adam and Eve. So some tragedies are an indirect result of that sin. This one, however, is a direct result of sin. The tragedy itself is sin, not sin of the families who are impacted by it, the sin of King Herod. You know, Herod commands the murder of children for his own personal gain. That's grotesque. You know, whatever his reasons for that, whether it's because of jealousy or pride or callousness or because Herod was a paranoid schizophrenic or had some other sort of mental illness, some historians have guessed that, I have no idea. Whatever the case, it does not change the fact that what he actually does here is wicked. Wicked, wicked. Even, this is just one piece of a, a larger pattern of Herod's sin. So this event in Bethlehem is not even recorded in history outside of Matthew's gospel. We have lots of record of Herod's life, but this one's not mentioned, partly because as awful as it is, it is a footnote in the long list of documented atrocities that King Herod did. He was famous for heartless executions. I mean, just in his own family, he drowned his own brother-in-law, strangled two of his own sons, and assassinated his favorite wife. Favorite wife. He had ten. The Emperor Augustus said about Herod, it, it would be better to be Herod's pig than his son. This is sin. Sin. And it's the nature of sin that sin affects not just ourselves, it usually has the worst impact on the other people around us. That is, those who felt the stab, the sting of this sin were the families who lost their children. And while all of this is still under the Lord's rule, God is still sovereign He is still the providential king of kings. God is not to blame for the wickedness of this. God is not guilty of sin here. Herod is. This is Herod's sin, not God. And Herod will bear the consequences of that sin. That's the first observation. The second observation about this tragedy is that this tragedy is... Sad. This tragedy is sad. I mean, some people would say, of course. (laughs) You know, what else is new? Preacher finds something, you know, every tragedy is sad. Of course it is. But it's good for us to remember that for this scene and for others that we might see in the news, either locally or globally, these are not just intellectual examinations, this is not just a philosophical conundrum, these are real people with real lives and real, real pain. It might be different for you, but at least for me, if it's not my pain, it's easy to forget that it really hurts. To, to turn that pain into some sort of abstract idea. You know, in relation to these sorts of things, I've often been struck by the way C.S. Lewis wrote uh, wrote about pain. He, he wrote two major books on the topic of pain. I think I may have mentioned this before, but it's worth mentioning again. Two major books, one called The Problem of Pain and the other called A Grief Observed. In A Problem of Pain... C.S. Lewis talks about pain as a sort of theological apologetic, why it is, where it comes from, what it does, and all those things. But in A Grief Observe, he writes this book after his wife, Joy, died of cancer. Both of the books are important, thoughtful books, but they're vastly different. It is different to examine grief than it is to experience grief. Grief looks different from the outside than it does on the inside. But whatever way we look at it, the grief, the tragedy is still sad. You know, thankfully, Matthew, in his writing of this account, spares us from having to see the worst of this Bethlehem tragedy. He mentions it and then just kind of moves on because having to imagine the actual fathers and mothers who were left behind in Herod's wake is just too much for me to think through. Matthew's not writing for shock value. He's just trying to tell us what happened. And while his description of the events are short, he doesn't depict them in a cold way, in an aloof way as from the outside. He cites from the prophet Jeremiah in verse 8, recalling a, a time where situations like this, where there's weeping, where there's loud lamentations, where there's a refusal to be comforted because it's that difficult. That's an understandable response to tragedy. Perhaps some of you may even know what what that feels like. And the text here doesn't say about those people who are mourning, stop it. It doesn't say, stop crying, you better suck it up. Nor does it say, you need to have more faith. If you had more faith, this wouldn't hurt so much. Nor does it say, hey, Jesus gives you hope and resurrection. Of course he does. But it doesn't say that here. The text just says, this was sad. Speaks of that deep sadness. So if you are struggling with pain, either now or maybe in the future, you need to know that there is a place in the Bible for loud lamentation, for weeping, for even refusal to be comforted. Those cries are seen by God, heard by a God who has compassion on his people. And it's okay to just admit that this is sad. The third and final observation here before we end. Third one, last one. This tragedy is fulfillment. Fulfillment. It's, it's sin, it's sad, it's also fulfillment. This is the most important part of the whole scene, at least according to Matthew, because if you notice, as we went through the text, his final point in every paragraph is to say, this is what was fulfilled or this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets. He keeps saying that. You may have already noticed this without me mentioning it. One scholar says, this is the main theme of Matthew's gospel. The whole, not just this text, the whole book is about fulfillment. And more specifically, Jesus is the fulfillment. Now, what does that mean? Okay? So it's not as if the prophets of the Old Testament are somehow looking down these long corridors of history in time, and they're making predictions about Bethlehem and this tragedy and Jesus. If that were the case, we might find Matthew's choice of the prophecies to be a little odd here. I mean, if you actually look up these prophecies in the Old Testament, if you can, the prophecy about the Nazarene at the end, Nazareth is never mentioned in the Old Testament. But if you were to try to look up these these references, you would find that there's, they're they're not really predictions. So it, it might seem to some people like Matthew's uh, trying to make these things say something that they don't. That, that Matthew's digging through the, the Old Testament scriptures to find a little prophecy, a, a round hole, and then and then find a round peg of Jesus to try to jam it into there to make it kind of fit, and say, "Look, it's fulfilled in Jesus." That's not what's happening here. That mistakes how Matthew and others use prophecy in their writing. Fulfillment of prophets here is not about prediction. It's about patterns. So prophecies are not about prediction. They're about patterns. That is, that what the prophets said throughout the history of the Old Testament, we're now also seeing in Jesus in a way that's bigger, fuller, Fulfilled. So one of the biggest echoes that's referenced here in the fulfillment of this Bethlehem scene is drawing off of the threads, the patterns in the Exodus event in Egypt. We're not able to outline all the details, but Matthew has drawn parallels to this all over the place here. So we're to see now that Jesus is part of a new kind of Exodus There's a pattern now that has Jesus as a new and better Moses in bringing his people out. So this fulfillment in Jesus is then bringing everything to a new level. It's filling it full. So in this new Exodus, the oppression is not just coming from the outside in the Egyptian Pharaoh. The oppression here is coming from the inside, from one of the Jews' own kings, Herod. And the ultimate deliverance that they have is not just from slavery, it's a deliverance from, from sin itself. That's the direction of this. The rescue is not even going to come temporarily as it did back in Exodus, where there was a generation who then fell back in and had cycle repeats and repeats and repeats and repeats and repeats throughout the Bible. This is not a temporary rescue. Jesus' rescue is permanent. Once and for all time, it's bigger, it's fulfilled in Jesus. This is setting the stage for the whole rest of Matthew's gospel, that as the book unfolds, we begin to realize and see that Jesus is not immune from tragedy. That just because Jesus is the Son of God, who is one with the Father, does not mean that he is exempt from the effects of sin and sadness That every time he gets a little close to it he's just gonna, Someone's going to have a dream And whisk him off to Egypt Jesus is entering into all of it As the fulfillment of all things Jesus may have been carted off to Egypt here As a young child Dodged the bullet, so to speak But he does not avoid execution forever. He's only spared this time because his time hasn't come yet. But it would come. You know where the story goes. His time for execution would come when he submits himself to the greatest tragedy of all, Execution on a cross where Jesus experiences a death not only of his body and blood, but death of the Spirit, crushed by sin, as every sin of every believer is laid upon him, and the wrath of the Father is poured out upon Jesus as he drinks down every drop until he cries out with a final breath, It's finished. How could God allow such a thing? As much as we do not understand all the mysteries of pain in this life, we do know that our God is still all-powerful and still all good. Because we see on the cross the lengths to which our powerful good God will go to save us from sin. Tragedy, then, is not a mark against God's goodness. It is a testament to the fullness of his care in the midst of our pain. Would you pray with me? Lord, these are weighty things. To, to feel and see the, the sin of the tragedy, the sadness of the tragedy, even the fulfillment of these tragedy, in the midst of it all, we know that you are good and powerful and wise. Help us, when tragedy comes our way, to cry out to you. Would you humble us by these things and stir in us a trust that we would persist in faith, looking to you as our ultimate hope. Thank you, Jesus, for being our Savior, and we give you praise as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.